So this morning, we're finishing off our Discerning Truth series. And I want to start off with an example of an analogy, so to speak, that will help us springboard into our conversation for the day. So let's say uh, there is a situation with the random guy who's living in 2022. All right. There's our random guy. And one day in November, he, he writes a letter to his friend. And, and this is all it says. He says, Christmas is coming soon, which is great news, right? Who doesn't love Christmas? Raise your hand if you love Christmas. Okay. Well, you guys are a little more sad than I thought. Okay, so Christmas is coming soon. So a random guy writes his uh, random friend, Christmas is coming soon, and he dates it in November. And he says, hey, keep your eye out because Christmas is just around the corner. And his friend cannot wait for Christmas. He's super excited. He's, he loves waking up on Christmas morning with a fresh cup of coffee a delicious breakfast, a tree uh, with a bunch of presents underneath, and he loves sitting around with his family reading the biblical story of Jesus. Now, let's say 2,000 years after this letter was written, a random uh, guy finds it. He's our random archaeologist, okay, our random historian. So he finds this letter, and he uh, translates it from English into whatever language he's speaking, and 2,000 years later... And he realizes that it says Christmas is coming soon. And he sees the date, and it's like around the same time of year that he's in. And he realizes he hasn't prepared for it. And to him, he starts to get really anxious and nervous because in his day and age, Christmas is when his government comes around and collects taxes. Ugh. And he realizes he hasn't prepared for Christmas tax season yet. I mean, Christmas is still celebrated, but it just has a little bit of a different connotation because taxes are associated with it. And he realizes he hadn't been putting away money all year, and then he's reminded when he reads this letter, ah, shoot, Christmas is right around the corner. So it's not that he mistranslated words. It's because of his cultural differences. It's because of the contextual differences that he misunderstood the writer's intent, and he did not know what it meant to the original reader. So the historian, 2,000 years later, thinks that the writer was writing to this guy to warn him about the upcoming tax season. Hey, get prepared. Christmas is just right around the corner. Whereas the original writer and the original reader intended for it to be a joyous occasion, a reminder that, hey, we're right on Christmas. It's going to be awesome. Now, of course, this is a completely made up and exaggerated example, right? But it does communicate a very real and dangerous problem that we can run into with Scripture. And just because we make an accurate translation from the original words of a language to English, which, by the way, we're very good at. And I've, I've, we ran over a few different times over the last different couple years, but... We have original texts that we translate very well into English. So that's not really the issue. But what we get into, the trouble we get into, is differences in interpretation. Because we live in a different time, a different culture, 
in a different context than the people who wrote Scripture and the people who originally were reading it. And we go about the process of trying to discern truth, and if we do it properly, we come away with truth. Or if we do it poorly, we misconstrue Scripture. We, we mess it up, the interpretation. And that will lead us to potentially missing something important. Or in the worst case scenario, that may lead to us missing the entire message, just missing the mark of what the Bible is actually saying. Kind of like what the historian in this silly example did this morning, where he just completely misunderstood what was being said. And when it's a note about Christmas, that's not a big deal. But when it's about the Bible, the book that we've come to trust, that is a big deal because it has to do with salvation. So like I said, we're finishing up the last week in a Discerning Truth series. So you won't have that super long title on your bulletin anymore that goes all the way to the margin. So in this series so far, let's just recap. Because this is how we got to today. We talked about why truth is important. We made a case. Why are we even concerned with truth? We talked about why we should care about it. And then we talked about why maybe we trust the Bible over other religious texts. Why, why is Christianity maybe the one that we should be paying attention to? And then last week we talked about, hey, if I, if I believe we should, that truth is important, I believe that we should listen to the Bible. Well, can I ask questions? Can I question my faith? Can I look into different things without feeling guilty? Or how do I go about that? Is there a proper way and a proper way? That's what we covered. And so if you get to the conclusion, you, you believe that truth is important, you believe that the Bible is the, the book you're going with, which I think you should, that Christianity is the right way, and then you believe that you are able to seek truth, that you're able to ask questions, that leads us to today's conversation is how do you weigh the evidence? Is there a good way? Is there a bad way? If, if you're given two different opinions on something, and, and you let's say you hear a new idea about Christianity maybe, or... You read a passage and it uh, comes up with a question in your own mind. How do you go about finding the truth? How do you weigh the evidence in a good way? So that's where we're going to start off this morning. And we're going to start off our discussion on this topic with three different words. Exegesis, eisegesis, and hermeneutics. (laughs) Hermeneutics is not the study of hermit crabs or the study of people named Herman. Okay? So let's go ahead and define these terms a little bit because they're important to our topic. This is, if you're going to be looking into hermeneutics, we'll get there in a second. If you're going to be looking into how to interpret the Bible, you're going to run across these words, so it's important to know them. First, we have exegesis, which is a Greek compound word between the prefix ex, which means out, and the verb, oh man, hegesthei which means to lead or to guide, and it's translated in the proper verb tense to um, thesis or so, just around there. And so the word exegesis uh, means to come out of with understanding. That means you are letting whatever you're reading lead or guide you. So you're, you're pulling out from something, right? So ex, you're coming out with understanding and guidance. Right, So exegesis is simply letting the Bible do the work of interpreting and saying and allowing it to influence what you think. So that's exegesis. You, you look at the Bible here and you read and it comes out to you. You let it try to define the terms of what it's saying. 
So eisegesis is just the opposite of that, and it just uses the prefix eis, which is just in instead of out. So when we're reading the Bible and we're practicing eisegesis, which, by the way, is a big no-no, just stay away from that. It's where you take your interpretive biases, your opinions, maybe what you're looking for, and you read it into Scripture. So you, you, you are giving guidance and leading in Scripture with what you think. So that is kind of the basis. And the word hermeneutics just simply means to interpret, the study of interpretation. So there's a lot of different ways you can go about hermeneutics, okay? So exegesis out, which is what we want. Eisegesis in, reading our biases in, is a bad thing. And hermeneutics is just a general study. So how do we interpret correctly? How do we come to a good understanding? Well, there are a bunch of different categories or genres of hermeneutics, so to speak. But I think the one that we should stick to, which most scholars, biblical scholars, stick to, what I personally think is a good way of going about things is called the historical contextual hermeneutic. Okay? Um, you're going to walk out of here feeling so sharp. I mean, you're, you're going to walk away and you're going to go to like your Christian friend at work and be like, what's your hermeneutic on scripture? Like, do you prefer the historical contextual hermeneutic or something else? And they're going to be like, wow, you must actually pay attention at church. <laughs> So this is just a fancy way of saying that you need to try to understand the historical context of the author, the readers, and the surrounding meaning of the passage that you're in in order to walk away with the original meaning and intent of the words that were written. So if you're practicing historically contextual hermeneutics, historical contextual hermeneutics, you're going to be asking two questions primarily. Number one, why, or sorry, excuse me, what would this have meant to the author, to the person that actually wrote the book? And number two, what would this have meant to the original reader? Now, of course, our big overarching author, the person that we say inspires all scripture is God himself, the Father. So through individuals, God has worked. And these individuals, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, span a long period of time, almost 2,000 years between the first person who wrote some of the words of the Bible, and the last person. So there's the overarching uh, meta-storyline uh, meta that God has put together. But each individual author was in a different cultural time and physical time and place than other authors. And so they each have their own different particular influences from that environment. So what did it mean to the author? What did it mean to the reader? So to kind of get an example of eisegesis and exegesis. We're going to look at what I think is maybe one of the potentially most well-known Bible verses in the world, but also potentially maybe one of the most misunderstood, which is Jeremiah 29.11. I want you to go ahead and open to Jeremiah chapter 29 with me. So Jeremiah 29.11 is a verse that you can find on wall decor sold at every Christian store. It's on stickers, it's on refrigerator magnets, it's on Instagram graduation posts, coffee mugs, t-shirts, literally anywhere that written word can be gone, going, like graffiti in a bathroom. You're going to find Jeremiah 29.11 somewhere in the world, right? And I, Don't get me wrong, there is nothing bad, nothing bad at all about bringing scripture out into the world and using it to remind you of God's goodness. 
And I know 29.11, Jeremiah 29.11, is probably a favorite verse of one of yours, which is not a bad thing. Don't, don't get me wrong. But let's go ahead and look at it real quick. Let's remind ourselves what it says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you future and hope. Now let's say that there's a person who puts this particular verse on their Instagram graduation post. So they just graduate from high school, their cap's in the air, and they like the awesome picture, and then below is Jeremiah 29, 11. And to them, if, this was, if they were practicing eisegesis, to them, this verse means that God is going to provide a good spouse for them, a good job and the career that they're going for. They're going to make lots of money and have a secure financial future. That's what it means to them, that... God's going to make plans for me, plans to prosper. He's going to look over me. He's going to take care of me and everything in my life. And they would be reading this with eisegesis. They are saying, this is what I think this verse means. Therefore, that's what it means. And that's a big no-no. We already said that. Because we are historical contextual hermeneuticists. So... If we're going to stick with the historical contextual hermeneutic, we have to walk away with a different understanding of this verse. Or at least we may walk away with a different understanding. If we're practicing exegesis, we let the verse tell us what it means, right? So that could be what it actually means, or it could mean something else. So how do we start by answering that question? Well, we start by asking the right questions. What did the original author mean by it? And what did the original readers understand from it? Which lead us to a simpler set of questions. Who actually wrote this book and who is actually reading it? And Jeremiah 29 verse 1 leads us. This is why I picked this because it's a very straightforward example. And it's not always this easy, but it is in this case. Jeremiah 29 1 gives us the answer to that. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So in this verse is packed with a ton of information, right? We learn that it's the prophet who wrote this, someone chosen by God, his name was Jeremiah. So that's the original author. Who was he writing to? Well, the book was written to the spiritual leaders who were in exile after Babylon came and removed the Jewish people from their homeland and took them to Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we know that Jeremiah, in fact, is writing this from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we even have more information. And because we know the exact date of the exile, we know that this book was written somewhere between 630 and 580 BC. So we found a lot of information just in that one verse. If if you look at it, wow, it's packed full of information of who the author was and who the readers were. And of course, that brings us into the mindset, oh wait, these aren't 21st century high school students that this is being written to. This is actually Jewish descendant people who have been taken from their homeland and shot off somewhere else, and they're currently under oppression. Okay, so that's what's being written to. And that instantly changes the feel. Right? So now what we have to do in the historical contextual hermeneutic is look at the surrounding passage for context. So let's look at verse 10. Let's just start there. We could read more. Ideally, I like the 20-20 rule. 
read 20 verses ahead and at least 20 verses ahead and 20 verses behind because even if you're starting on verse 1, because the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses to originally begin with. So like when, in, for example, Romans 12, it starts with therefore. Whoa, that means you missed all of what Paul was talking about in chapter 11 that substantiates everything he's about to say. So go back and read it if you're really trying to understand it. So just because we are in Jeremiah 29 doesn't mean that we shouldn't go back and at least look at chapter 28. But we don't have time to read 20 verses ahead and 20 verses behind. Follow the 2020 rule when you're doing this by yourself. So let's start at least in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place where I sent you into exile." So looking at the context of just the few surrounding verses here, surrounding verse 11, we read that God is making a very specific promise to the people that were in exile that after 70 years, he will bring them back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land where he plans to give them prosperity once again. So he's going to make sure that the people in exile have a future, that they have a hope to look forward to. He makes it clear that he's going to bring his people back from the surrounding nations where they're currently living back to the one nation where God wants them to be. He also makes it clear that these promises are supposed to be accompanied by a certain amount of action from his people, which is praying to him, seeking him, searching for him with all of your heart. So just in a few short minutes here, we've, we've already looked at the surrounding context, used the historical contextual hermeneutic method. We put into practice exegesis, and that allowed us to get a text-informed interpretation of what this means. And what we see is that God is not making a blanket statement to everyone that he's going to bring prosperity to them. Right? We now have a better understanding that God is the promise keeper and promise maker. And he says, I'm going to do something. And it happened. We have the hindsight benefit of knowing that God actually did deliver them in an amazing way from exile after 70 years and brought them back to the promised land. So when we look at this verse, people who are using eisegesis for Jeremiah 29, 11, who are reading into it, can, can skew it and turn it into what we call the prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and happiness. If you follow God, you're going to make money. You're going to, all your relationships are going to be good. Everything in your life is going to be dandy if you follow God. And if it's not, that means you're not doing it right or you're not giving enough money. Right? That's prosperity gospel. But what Jeremiah 29 actually means for us is, one, that he does care about his people. And we're his people now. We can see that from other verses in the Bible, which means he cares for us. That God fulfills his promises. He's made promises to them. He's fulfilled them. He's made promises to us. He will fulfill that too. So it has tremendous meaning and impact. 
It's not like it's just for these people here. We get to read it and it benefits us as well. But we walk away with a different understanding, right? It means something, I think, even deeper than the eisegesis way of looking at it. You see the difference, right? You see how we're going about this in a different way. So there, like I said, are people out there who've used Scripture and twisted it to mean something that it's not. And, and it's usually done through eisegesis or poor interpretation using a different hermeneutic method. And we are not the first people to run across this kind of thing. Peter himself, in fact, from Scripture, mentions people who uh, twist the words of Paul specifically and use them to mean something else. So look at what First Second uh, Peter three fifteen through 18 says. We looked at a portion of this passage last week. But look at what he says. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And then this is the portion we read last week. But grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So even Peter realizes that Scripture if used improperly, can be distorted, which leads to misunderstanding of truth, which leads to destruction. And this is why it is so important for us to take this pursuit of truth seriously, not just to believe anything you hear, and that includes coming from me. Okay? You need to weigh the evidence, because at the end of the day, you, look at me, straighten the eyes, at the end of the day, you, I'm going to try to look at everyone. Ellie, look at me. <laughs> at the end of the day, you are accountable for what you believe. Okay? Not me. You're accountable for what you believe. And I'm accountable for what I teach. And I'm going to do my best every single day, every single week. To, to show you what I'm saying is from Scripture. But I am flawed and I'm going to mess up and I don't know everything. Shocker. I know. But at judgment, when God is looking at what you've done and what you believe, it's going to be on your shoulders. You are accountable for what you believe and do. Which is the exact warning that Paul gave Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not be, need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So if we fail to take the search of truth seriously, then we will be found ashamed and foolish at the end. 
However, we can also be found as diligent workers who do not need to be ashamed because we correctly handled the word of truth. We put the work in to finding the truth to make sure that we understand what we believe, right? And now I, I have to admit we've only started to scratch the surface of how we can go about understanding Scripture correctly. We could do a whole series on hermeneutics to discuss the different types of biblical genres, which are important to understand if you're interpreting Scripture. We could go and dive into the resources available to us for everybody about the original language of the Bible, how you can parse out words, and you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic to do that. There's people who have done that work for you, and usually very reliable work. And then we can, we can talk about improving our understanding of the actual historical context of Scripture, like what was it like for the lives of the people who were living in exile, for example, or where was Jeremiah in Jerusalem at the time? What was it like? We could, we could go, I mean, we could honestly spend a lifetime talking about all those different details, and it's going to take a lifetime. And we don't have a lifetime today, <laughs> unfortunately. However, I think we did learn some important lessons that will help us to start heading in the right direction. To help us um, boil down the important essentials, at least to ask ourselves as we're moving into seeking understanding, to discerning truth when we're weighing evidence. Because it's up to you to do that work. So number one, always seek understanding for yourself. You have to walk away with that today. By this, I mean when you hear something new or when you have a question, make sure to implement due diligence, best practices to seek understanding for yourself. And as I said, even though it sounds weird, you cannot always take my word for it. You can't take Cam's word for it. You can't take Tom's. You can't take anybody's word for it. I know that Michael had the same preaching policy as well. Look it up. Test it against what Scripture says. Does it make sense? Does it prove back to be true? And as I said, I'm going to do my best to lay out biblical evidence. I feel the burden of the responsibility to be a good teacher, but I, like I said, do not know everything. I'm going to make mistakes at some point, and I'm learning and growing myself. I don't know everything. It's a surprise. I know. But it's important for all of us to realize that Scripture is also not just an intellectual pursuit, right? Scripture is also a spiritual pursuit, understanding Scripture. Because God has promised us his spirit, his power, that will illuminate us to help us understand what he says through his word. So yes, it's important to have a good hermeneutic, to have a logical reason, a reasoning path to go through things to help you get to the truth in a really reliable way. But it's also important not to neglect the spiritual side of it. Because an atheist using historical contextual hermeneutics can come to Scripture and say, this is what I think it means. But a Christian inspired by the Spirit may have a completely different understanding or pull something else out of it that the atheist just couldn't see. So there is a spiritual component here, and I don't want us to ignore that either. Number two, start with the simple questions. So when you're seeking to understand the Bible and you're looking for truth, make sure you ask simple questions to start. Who wrote this? What, did they, what do I think, based on the context, did they mean? Who, who read this? How would they have read it? 
And then as you answer some of those simpler questions, when was it written, what was going on in the world at the time, and the suction of the world at the time, you can do some easy Googling what was going on. Then you can move to more deeper and nuanced questions where you start saying, well, Paul says this here, but what was he saying earlier in a different book? Or how does what Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Isaiah said tie together? Or, you know, you can start going into these deeper, hyperlinked kind of questions where you're searching for meaning in a bigger kind of sense. And, but you have to start small. You can't just hop in and say, what did blah, 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 and have this huge, deep question. You have to break it down and start with the simple stuff. And then number three, be ready to invest a lot of time. And I use the word invest on purpose. Because to spend a lot of time means that you're just giving money away and it's gone. But when you're investing, it means it's going to bring back a return. And that's what happens when you spend time investing in Scripture and studying Scripture. They say it can take up to 10,000 hours to master a skill, to, to truly become a master. And if you did one hour a week... Let's say you did 30 minutes of Bible study, 30 minutes of sermon listening a week. And let's say that was your investment in the Bible. It would take you 192 years to become a master, to invest 10,000 hours. The point is, it's going to take a long time. And doing this just on a Sunday morning is not enough. I mean, we do have pre-built times to come together to talk about this stuff, which is super important to take advantage of. We have home group. We have two adult Sunday schools coming up and those kinds of things. So take advantage of them. But there's also time commitments that you need to make outside of the time we come together. And that can be listening to books, podcasts, reading scripture, asking these questions yourself, journaling, whatever helps you to digest this stuff. You have to do it on your own time because, once again, you are accountable for what you believe and do. So I hope this series has uh, been encouraging to you. I hope that it has left you with maybe some questions or a thirst to search out some things and find some truth. I hope it's been informative. And I know that we did not cover everything. We did not cover every angle or idea in this topic. But what I think we did do is set at least a good foundation that will help us build understanding. And as we continue to meet together as we continue week after week to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and God, we should keep growing as we grow. That's what we should be doing. So that's why it's important for us to keep meeting together, because it keeps us growing. It keeps us participating in things. It keeps us asking new questions. So... We live in an information age, and there's never been more access to knowledge. That also means there's more junk out there than there's ever been, which means it's good for us to have a good idea of how to look through it all, to weigh the different opinions and evidence, and to be better, to be better, more knowledgeable lovers of God and his Son. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we do have to come together and meet with you and your son, to grow in knowledge and love. And I pray that as we seek truth every day, that your spirit is working in us to do that. 
Give us the humility we need to change our minds and the courage we need to keep our strong opinions of truth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.